0: Success Insight shares the stories of the people with passion and drive who make things happen in the world.
1: Here's your host, Howard Fox. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Success Insight Podcast. Today's guest is Mauro Guillen. Mauro is one of the most original thinkers at the Wharton School, where he holds the Zanman Professorship in International Management. And teaches in its flagship advanced management program and many other courses for executives, MBAs, and undergraduates. Morrow's research, teaching, and speaking incorporates both numerical assessments of trends and illuminating examples from business, politics, and everyday life. He shows in accessible terms that one can accurately forecast trends by systematically following the babies and following the money into the future. Morrow has numerous books to his credit, including his latest, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Marl, welcome to the Success Insight Podcast.
0: Howard, thank you so very much for having me.
1: Mara, I have to say, we have fires and environmental issues going on out in the West Coast, throughout the entire West Coast, for that matter. We have hurricanes. We have COVID-19. We have a what is no doubt going to be a very trying election cycle as we come up very quickly towards November. And here's this book, 2030 which is, you know, 10 years away. I'm just hoping we survive by the end of the year. (laughs) Yes,
0: that's what many people tell me. Why think about 10 years down the road when we are right now in the midst of so much trouble? You're absolutely right. The one
1: question I ask, and maybe we'll have this as a thread throughout our conversation, is geez, I hope there is some type of hope for humanity out here. This has been a trying year. How's your year been?
0: Well, my year has been, I think, very confusing to me. I never thought that I would live through anything like this. And I think this is shared by a lot of other Americans and people around the world. Now, fortunately, neither myself or my friends or family have been directly affected by COVID-19, and I still have my job, so I have nothing to complain about, except that I think, you know, a pandemic will requires us to make adjustments to our lives. You know, I can appreciate your your
1: sentiments. I've been fortunate myself with my friends and family. And heck, I even made a a relocation from the Midwest out to Nevada. But I'm wondering, how does this book 2030, I mean, how do you begin to lay out the groundwork for this book and to get us to think about, here's where we are today. These are kind of like signposts or the the markers that we need to pay attention to for what 2030 is going to look like.
0: Well, look, I mean, this pandemic essentially is having, for the most part, the effect of exacerbating or intensifying, accelerating trends that were already going on in the United States and around the world. So we're seeing population aging, making progress more quickly. We're seeing automation. We're seeing, unfortunately, economic inequality rising. And the pandemic is only accelerating these trends. We were using platforms such as the one that we're using right now to tape this program. And you know, the pandemic has essentially brought us well into the future in terms of using these platforms all day long, right? For shopping, for working, for learning, for playing, meaning for entertainment. So the, the future is arriving faster. And that's why I think it's so urgent to think about that future, although we are so concerned right now with the present.
1: I think you're spot on. I mean, I've been using this platform, you know, for our listeners where Maro and I are on the Zoom platform. Zoom got a lot of publicity because they were, you know, better for worse, best able to step up to the need for the masses that are suddenly finding themselves working from home. And I'm also thinking about some of the other professions and entrepreneur initiatives. I call them side hustles for the sake of a better word. You know, I can't go anywhere without somebody trying to sell masks or hand sanitizer or workshops on how to Function more effectively virtual. And, you know, just, I think you're right. I mean, it's this COVID 19 has just exasperated perhaps initiatives that were farther back on the plate, but now they're, they're front and center. And when you started to write this book, now you're, you are a very prolific writer. I mean, being a scholar, an educator, part of the requirement is you have to write books and this idea of 2030. When did this first
0: start to take shape for you? Well, it was Howard about seven years ago. So if you remember way back then, we were emerging out of the previous crisis, the global financial crisis. And I was making a lot of presentations, not just for my students, but also going to conferences, making speeches, going to companies, sometimes even high school students. I would visit a high school and I would tell them about the kinds of things that I thought were going on in the world and the trends and how the future might look like. And people would essentially tell me, "Uh, we're confused. We don't know exactly where we're going. We're disoriented. And after doing That for two or three years and getting all of that feedback from different kinds of audiences, I decided I think I've got to write a book about this. I've got to write a book giving people a roadmap as to what may happen over the next uh, five to 10 years. And hence, you know, the title of the book, 2030. So that's what motivated me. What motivated me was that I was detecting a little bit of anxiety. And this was well before the pandemic, a little bit of this sense that people were a little bit lost, that they needed some sense as to. What is it that is going on that is changing everything around me? That's why I wrote the book.
1: And as you began to allow this book to take shape in your mind and put some thoughts down on paper, I mean, you probably know this quote better than I do is if we don't understand history, we're somehow we're doomed to repeat it. And again, I think we see that very much today, and again without getting into a lot of politics and political leanings. I mean, there's a lot of things happening today that they happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. And then there are those that feel like we should be looking and we should anticipate what the future is. But if we don't know how to anticipate, what other ways are there to gather data and information for us to be able to say, this is what it's going to look like, this is what we need to prepare for?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Howard. I agree to a certain extent with the statement that uh, if we don't understand what has happened in terms of history, then we're condemned to repeat it. And if you remember a great writer, perhaps one of my favorite writers, Mark Twain, once said that history doesn't really repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so, a social scientist like myself, right, I'm a sociologist and a political economist, So what we do is we look for those rhymes. We look for the things that happen in the United States, in other countries around the world, and we're constantly looking for the echoes, for the rhymes, right? And I decided early on, to make a long story short, that the first approximation, is not the entire story, but the first approximation to trying to understand the future is to follow the babies, right? Because let's say that I want to find out a little bit more about what the world might look like in 10 years from now. Well, what I should do then is look at the babies that have been born in the U.S. or in other parts of the world over the last 10 years, because those people will be in their 20s when the year 2030 finally arrives. So following the babies, right? following those different generations of people, uh, trying to surmise, trying to anticipate what is it that may happen to them, right? That, I think, is the first step. It's not the only step, but it is the first step that one must take in terms of anticipating what the future may bring.
1: In this past three and a half years, okay, we're not fully complete with the four-year cycle of, of the current presidency. And I, there's a couple of things that I see is the political leanings. You have very much a, a group of individuals who are trying to keep in power for the sake of better words, and at all cost, But in thinking about these babies that are being born you know, 10 years ago today and 10 years from now, they were born 10 years ago. So 10 years from now, they're going to be 20. Those numbers, their needs are going to be a kind of a tidal wave for the current predicament that I think we're in is you know, individuals trying to stay in the power and not ceding authority or decision making. And I'm wondering how do we anticipate this future, but at the same time create a kind of a nice glide path? Let's use the, the air, air flight metaphors, a very nice glide path so we can absorb and make the changes to all of our benefit versus in today's environment where we're very much I win, you lose.
0: Yes, I I completely agree with you that oftentimes politicians have this incentive to focus on the very short run and to be more precise, the time between the moment in which they are thinking about what to do and the next uh, re-election. I mean, this is to be expected. This is in the very nature of democracy. But digging a little bit deeper into what you just mentioned, which is the babies being born and they're going to be growing up. And, you know, what happens is that each time that we make room for a new generation of people here in the United States, we need to think about how that new generation is going to fit with the other generations, right? Knowing, of course, that all of the other generations, well, 10 years later will be a little bit older, right? And their preferences and their needs will change. I think that's the challenge that we're facing right now as a country, right? So yes, we're going to have another generation of young people. We need to give them opportunities. We need to give them future. But at the same time, that new generation is going to have to coexist with people in their 40s or their 50s or people who go into retirement. And that's a big challenge. And I'm not saying that politicians don't care about that. Of course, they do. But oftentimes, they're blinded by the short term. The same way that, by the way, the financial markets are also driven very much by Sort them dynamics as you know. Um, so I think that's the the the, the challenge, right? And the challenge is to interpret history, what has happened before, and to try to anticipate where is it that we're going, and where do we want to be in ten years from now? And I think those are really important questions. You
1: know, looking at some of the categories that you are investigating, so the business, the finance, currency. I'm, I don't have an MBA, so I can't speak. Fully on that area, but I see a population that's continuing to grow with resources that are continuing to be limited. With environment, I mean, you just have to look around what's going on in the country right now, and you have policies that are, you know, whether it's by executive order at this point, designed to tap into those resources. You have technology that's continuing to change. So, in the use of artificial intelligence and, you know, Jobs that 10 years ago, and perhaps you thought about this 10 years ago, that were safe are now, There's they're finding ways to even use technology to do jobs that somebody physically had to do 10 years ago. The changing culture, you have more Hispanics culture, uh, Asian culture coming into the U.S., so changing demographics. And I'm wondering, is how do we get to this word hope? How do we Create a future when there's so much constraints and headwind against, we know these things are going to happen, but then all these areas are, con- I see it, Mauro, as kind of conspiring against us.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, Howard, that's exactly what I decided to write this book because many people over the last few years have been you know, asking me very similar questions or they have been you know, essentially conveying to me their, their fears and their anxieties about all of that. So let me, let me just use very quickly two examples among those that you just mentioned to show you how I, ke- I think we should be thinking in terms of the future. So the first one is you alluded to resources, natural resources. We're abusing the environment, right? I mean, population have been growing around the world for a long time. And of course, we have become richer and therefore we, 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 as consumers, we always like more, right? And now it's not just Americans. It's also Asians, right? Chinese, the Indians, everybody now has a middle class. And I think uh, that is a threat. That is a challenge because our resources on this planet are finite. They're not endless. They're not infinite. But at the same time, I think it creates two kinds of opportunities. One is to, for us to invest more in technologies that may help us become more efficient, that may help us become greener, that may help us become more efficient in terms of how we use resources. But the other one is it may actually help us see the future in a different way, which is that maybe we should be a little bit less wasteful. Let me just give you an example. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that we waste about a third of the food that reaches the consumer here in the United States. About a third. Think about that. Meaning that we buy the food, uh, but then we don't finish the plate, or you know, we let it go bad. We only use half of the lettuce that we purchased, and then after a couple of days, we have to throw it away. So I think this provides us with also opportunities. It provides us with opportunities, in particular, to demonstrate that we are human beings with a brain, and that we can behave in a more rational way that is better for the environment, and therefore better for future generations. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If we need to learn this,
1: where does that learning start? Do you, where do you think it starts? You are at the Warden School instructing. You, you see executives, you got the MBAs, the undergraduates. I mean, these are kids, you know, very well-to-do kids. They're very talented, intelligent. Is it enough to start having this conversation there with them? Will that make a difference? Or should it be happening further you know upstream in, the, in our education cycle?
0: Uh, well, the answer is very, very clear, which is that we need to bring everyone to this table that I'm proposing where we rethink, for example, the way in which we, we behave as consumers. The Wharton School or at my university, not everybody is uh, not all students are rich. I mean, we do have nearly twenty percent who are the first in their families to attend college. but having said that, I do believe that education, especially at the primary and secondary levels, have even more of an impact than education at the college level. But but I'm also thinking, uh, Howard, in terms of innovation. So, for example, everybody likes to use apps on their phones these days, and we use them for every conceivable purpose. So, at long last, there are some apps out there. They're still small, but they're growing, that are helping people, for example, share the food that they're going to throw away. And they're becoming increasingly popular. Not as popular as TikTok, okay, or as Facebook, <laughs> but they are becoming more popular. Uh, as time goes by, I think people are becoming more aware of the fact that we need to be a little bit less wasteful. And if we made each of us a small effort to become more rational about the way in which we consume, we could you know, not only abolish poverty in the world or here in the United States. I mean, there are kids that go hungry, but we could also ensure that future generations would be able to enjoy planet Earth in the same way that we have been able to enjoy it. And I think that's really important. So through innovation, through the use of technology or otherwise, I think we can become better, right? We can make the most out of our lives and we can demonstrate that we care about the future.
1: How do you propose, and this is not... This question is not to get put you on the spot in any shape or fashion. But I mean, here in the US, we live in a very individualist culture. It's all about me, what I want, what's good for me, and versus the collective, you know, whether it's Asia, South America, lots, many parts of Europe are a collective culture. It's it's the community. And how do we shape this new conversation, this new way of thinking? When we have a culture, at least here in the U.S., that's very much individualist.
0: Yeah, so I would agree with you that that, in principle, may strike everyone as being an obstacle to the kinds of solutions and the kind of hopeful future that I, I envision in the book. But let me turn the argument on its head and say that, well, what we can do is try to frame the situation in such a way that people even if they are trying to advance their self-interest, if they're behaving, as you mentioned, in an individualistic way, are more likely to do something that is pro-social, something that benefits society, right? And you can do that in two ways, as you know, and I write extensively in the book about this. One is you can provide people with incentives, monetary incentives, and to the extent that we are individualistic, then we should respond to them, right? Right. But then, uh, given that we're human beings, we can also provide people with nudges, right? with little clues as to what is it that they should do in order to save, for example, society from oblivion if we exhaust all of our natural resources. And we can do that in such a way that then people become more conscious about how much energy they use or how many things they're purchasing that maybe they don't need, and so on and so forth. So I think there are ways of building on that individualism so that in the end, when you aggregate it, right, when you consider everybody's decisions, you're actually arriving at better outcomes, right? And I think this is certainly one of the most effective ways uh, for example, tackling the problem of climate change or addressing the issue that you mentioned at the beginning, which is uh, our natural resource base, which is limited.
1: What do your students say, or what is their reaction to this type of a philosophy or a, a, a new way of thinking?
0: Well, uh, they don't speak with one voice. I mean, obviously, there's quite a bit of diversity of views. I would say that the younger generation, if we're talking, for example, about my undergraduates, or also high school students. Uh, so, uh, several times a year, I also make presentations, uh, and I have uh, high school students in the classroom because we have a... A program for them. And what I see is they're keenly aware of the importance of having a good relationship between humans and the environment, right? I mean, it's really, really important. Uh, And they recognize some of the trade offs, meaning, well, that's true, but everybody also wants to have a nice life and they want to consume, they want to travel, they want to do this, they want to do that. And I think uh, as people grow older, and here I'm reflecting on my own experience, uh, we start making different trade offs and different decisions about all of this. Uh, So I think uh, the critical thing here is I think uh, when we're younger, we probably have like really, really good idealistic principles in mind. I think uh, maybe what we should be doing is helping people continue to be and feel and think young, right? As if they had their entire lives ahead of them. And therefore, They needed to be very careful about how we use resources. I think that's what we need to do. What we need to do, once again, is provide people with the right incentives and the the right uh, nudges so that they behave in the way that we want a majority of people to behave. Otherwise, I think we're doomed, right? Every year that passes, uh, we have more pollution in the air. We have uh, more wildfires like we have now out west, and we have more problems in terms of the environment to deal with.
1: What does 2030 look like for you right now?
0: So 2030 will be a world in which we're going to have more grandparents and grandchildren. Think about that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Today, 12,000 people in the United States are celebrating their 60th birthday. And that's more than the people who are being born. So absent migration, you know, we're going to have a much older population, so to speak, by the year 2030. But you see, I actually think that's hopeful. That probably means that people are living longer. If we have so many people above the age of 60, it's not just because they made it to age 60. It's also because, hey, they're likely to live until they're 80 or 85 on average. So that's good news. But what I think it requires us is to rethink what being 70 years old or being 80 years old means. Because you see, a 70-year-old person today is very different from a 70-year-old person 50 years ago. And in 2030, it will also be a different thing. So in other words, I see hope because we can adjust to that new situation, but we're going to have to change our mindset. And by all means, Howard, I don't think we can support such a big population above the age of 60 with all of them being retired. Even that most people above the age of 60 are still in great physical shape and also mentally, they should also perhaps be working a little bit. As opposed to only being in retirement, so once again, I think it's a problem of a mind of having a different mindset to cope with the realities that we're going to be facing in 2030 and once again, I think by far the most important one is that, but there's others. Uh, let me just mention one which is the us will no longer be the largest consumer market in the world, and that's going to bring about quite a few changes
1: All right you know I'm reminded every once in a while on on Facebook there's a meme. And for our listeners, a meme is just a it's a picture that has a quote embedded on it designed to move you to some type of thought or action. And there, so there was this meme that essentially said, you know, we work our entire lives so that the last 10 years of our life when we retire, we could have fun versus what we should be doing is learning to have fun our entire life so we live a long and prosperous life prosperous both financially and good health and experiences and and i love that because i think a, a, as we work our way through the you know our, our careers it should not be you know make the most money you know have the biggest the biggest toys whoever has the biggest toys wins but to have good experiences and to take not only take care of ourselves but our our family and our community so that You know, we embrace the entire lifespan, not just work our butts off. So, the last 10 years, we could hopefully afford to take a vacation.
0: Yeah. When retirement was invented, meaning that somebody, most likely the government, will give you a pension so that you could enjoy, as you said, the last few years of your life, that happened 140 years ago, right? That's when the first pension systems were created. But you know what? Life expectancy back then. It was like 37, 38 years. So it was, it was a, a great idea, right? It's like, Oh, I'm going to promise people a pension once they turn 65. But by the way, most of you will never make it. But now on average, Americans are living 70 plus years. And if you're a woman, even more than that. So I think we need to revisit that assumption that we made, uh, uh more than a century ago about how first we learn, then we work and then we retire. Maybe we need to revisit that uh, sequence or. Uh, of stages in life. And perhaps we need to learn, work, and play throughout our lives, as opposed to allocating each of those activities to a particular moment in our lives.
1: You know, it's, I, I think you're spot on. I mean, it, for better or for worse, I've made decisions in, in my career and things that I was going to do. And so I went into coaching, which of which this podcast is an offshoot of my my coaching practice. And, you know, I see myself and the 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 beauty of technology, kind of what we, you and I are doing today, you know, you're you're halfway, you're across the country. I'm out west, but we can have a conversation. But the beauty is, we can do our work almost anywhere. You know, we don't have to be in a brick and mortar institution. I can coach, you can teach, you know, halfway across the world to to and work with your students. I can work with my clients, and that then provides lots of opportunity for continuing to work and, and have the experiences that we seek, and but at the same time, you know, continue, as you said, be productive members of society,
0: continuing to work. So in that respect, I truly embrace that. Yes, well, we're privileged, of course. Again, not everyone can work from whatever they want in the world. Uh, so you and I have certain advantages, but even for people who have to work doing physical work right manual physical work that you know perhaps is very difficult to continue past a certain age well we should put in place mechanisms so that those people could rotate into other roles like providing younger people with advice uh, like coaching right or even as to how to perform those jobs uh, Uh, Maybe we should rethink the way in which people rotate in and out of a particular occupation. I think there's a lot of scope for innovation and for reinventing the way we work.
1: You know, I think you're spot on. There is, in the U.S., I mean, we went from a a manufacturing to a service-oriented economy. and. There are shortages of the trades, you know, the the enge- mechanical engineers, the electrical, the plumbing, and it knows our in those are skill in our infrastructure because it's getting old. There, there is fewer and fewer people that can take care of it. So we, I think, we also have to embrace kind of you know along the same lines you've just described, getting people interested in realizing that can be a, a vibrant career and you can be happy and take care of yourself and provide for your yourself and your family, but also create possibilities and, and add to society. And I think we've got to get away from that. We have to have a, sorry, an MBA or, a, you know, degree or a law degree to, to be able to be to be perceived as being successful.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So I have a question. You know, you're there's no doubt that you are extremely busy. You've got your responsibilities as an educator. You're the author. You're lots of speaking engagements. When you're not on the road, you know, adding to your quiver of work, what do you do for your enjoyment?
0: Well, I love going to museums, for instance. I like to travel, and that's perhaps the the thing that I miss the most during this pandemic. Uh, But let me tell you the other thing that I really like doing, and I do it actually on my phone all the time. I like to read short pieces and I force myself every day to think about a topic that I know very little about. And then I go to my phone, I search for an article or two that uh, I can read in five or 10 minutes, and I try to learn about that topic. I love doing that. I call it exploration. Uh, But instead of uh, going to a national park, I serve the web and I just think about, uh, well, today I would like to learn more about, for example, the um, first uh, presidential election in this country more than 200 years ago. So let me read a couple of things about it. Right. And when you do that day after day, I mean, you can't imagine not only how much you learn, but also how many connections you make between different things that you never thought were connected. I love doing that. I mean, that kind of exploration that I can do in the last uh, 15 minutes of my day as I lie in bed and I'm you know, about to turn off the light, I truly enjoy doing that. And it's something that, of course, I've been able to do without interruption during this pandemic.
1: Right. You know, it's funny is when I moved to uh, uh, Nevada back in July, I-, I had the goal of I wanted to be able to get out to the national parks. And and even in this pandemic, I can still do that because it's just me and my car, but I started to do the research and I, I love Google because of the research I can do. And you know, how do I do this? How do I, what car should I buy? How do I sleep in my car? Uh, I have an interest in photography. So dark sky photography, how do I take pictures of the Milky Way? And these were things that I hadn't even considered a year ago because I didn't even know I was going to be moving here a year ago. And I love that idea of just what is it that, you know, maybe we read an article, maybe we overhear a conversation or hear something on the news, TV, watch something on TV. And then we take a minute, I want to learn more about that. And I think that's just wonderful. And from the point of technology, I think that's the greatest, one of the greatest gifts of technology that we have is just the, the information we have access to. Provided it's we critically evaluate it, but it's it's out there it's out there for us to consume and to use and to learn
0: absolutely, I completely agree with you, and this is of course one of the most uh, liberating aspects of technology. but as you just suggested, you know you have to have a discerning mind because you can find on the internet uh, an argument about George Washington, and I can assure you you can. Also, find just the opposite argument about George Washington, also on the web, and you can also find maybe twenty conspiracy theories about, you know, George Washington. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's important also to develop over time the ability to tell what is something that is worth reading online, and what is something that is just, uh, you know, rubbish that you shouldn't be taking seriously into consideration. Most definitely.
1: Marl, before we leave, I mean, there's, there's two pieces to the show. One of them, I, I, want, I would love if you would share the best ways for our listeners to learn more about you and your work. Uh, but before we do that, we have uh, on occasion, and it's only because I kind of forget to do it, but it's today, it just, you know, I've definitely have been thinking about this. Our show is called Success Insight. And we have, on occasion, a, a piece called Insight to Go. And what I'd love to invite you to do is, what, if there's an article or a quote or an idea that you would like to leave our listeners with to be able to take and ponder and act upon, what would you like to share with them?
0: Well, if it were a quote, I would probably use something from Shakespeare, Okay, and uh, in one of his plays, and I actually quote this in the book, one of the characters, uh, Brutus says, uh, so this must be from Julius Caesar, he says, uh, more or less, I'm not going to be able to uh, reproduce the quote literally, that we you have to take the current when it serves you. Meaning that, and that's what my entire book is about, that it's better to be a surfer right? I know you don't have surfers in Nevada, but uh, you get the picture. What you're trying to do is to catch the waves, right? To ride the waves and see where they take you rather than fight those currents or those waves. So, we need both kinds of people, obviously, in any country in the world. The people who fight the currents and who want to reshape them and also the people who are very good at catching the waves and uh, But right now, there are all of these big things that are happening in the world. And I definitely believe that we need people who are experts at sensing in which direction, you know, the wind is blowing uh, and uh, where is the next wave going to happen. And then, you know, to catch that wave and try to take advantage of it. Uh, So that's, I think, the idea that I would like your listeners to. Consider for a while, right? That in the midst of so many transformations, maybe what we ought to be doing is try to see how we can adjust to those waves. Very good. Thank you so much.
1: And so that our listeners can learn more about you and your work, where are the best places for them to go uh, to do that?
0: Yeah. So I would encourage them to come to my website, www.moroguillen, my name, M A U R O G U I L L E N.com. And uh, they can also, uh, if they visit the website, not only take a look at a number of materials there, which are all free, except for the book, of course, but, and they can send me a message and I will, I guarantee you reply to every single message that I get through my website uh, or they can go to LinkedIn and they can request, uh, you know, being connected to me. And then we can also initiate a conversation. So I would love, and I, I really enjoy engaging in, in in a good conversation with people about all of these big problems and big opportunities that we have in the world right now.
1: Fantastic. Well, we will most certainly uh, provide the backlinks on our show notes to the website, as well as to your LinkedIn uh, URL, as well, as well as to the uh, uh, book page. I know you're on a lot of book sites, but we'll definitely have a link out there uh, to Amazon as well. Uh, Maro Guillen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to join us on the Success Insight podcast.
0: Howard, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation, and I I think I will remember it for a long time. Fantastic. Thank you.
1: All right, folks, we have just been chatting with Mauro Guillen. He is the author of 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. And really a very wide-ranging conversation. Definitely some great points of view. And really some insights into how we need to think about what the future can look like and the steps that we can take and to, you know, make those adjustments because we, you know, we can choose to stand in place and let the earth revolve around us, or we can make those adjustments and just jump into the stream as well. So we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, we would love to hear from you. Please comment on our Success Insight podcast page for this particular episode. And you can also listen to the episode on our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, Success Insight podcast, as well as YouTube. And we are on all the major podcast platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And folks, remember, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, go out there, have a phenomenal day, be safe, practice social distancing, wear your mask, take care of yourselves, your friends and family, and do good by others, okay? We'll see you on the next episode of the Success Insight Podcast. Take care now. Success Insight is a production of Fox Coaching and First Story
0: Strategies. Find us online, successinsightpodcast.com.